0: Well, hey there, this is Kim Constable. Welcome to the Strong and Sculpted podcast, the podcast by me, Kim Constable, about all things strong. And of course all things sculpted. Now, today, we're going to talk about uh, sculpted more than strong, I suppose. Well, a little bit of both in here, but I'll tell you why. Um, I have wanted to record this podcast for a long time. I've actually written the notes for it. I'm, I'm sure I wrote the notes for this podcast about six or seven or eight or maybe even a year. it was not say months ago, but maybe even a year ago. And today's podcast is all about cellulite. Now, I have a real problem with cellulite. Well, not a problem as in like, I don't have a lot of cellulite myself. I have a problem with the whole concept of cellulite and how it seems to be something that really distresses women all over the world. So today I wanted to talk about cellulite, what it actually is, how to get rid of it, and all good things like that. Sound good? Okay. So before we dive into Cellulite. What I, want, what I do want to tell you is it's almost at the end of the month. This is uh, being recorded in May 2020. And of course, we always choose the winner at the, well, at the start of the next month, actually, at the start of June, we choose a winner from the podcast reviews to win a strong and sculpted program. Not a strong and sculpted program. A, a, I can't even speak this morning. It's very early for me. It's like 7am and I'm sitting here in my office recording this. I don't normally record at this time. I normally record a bit later, but busy day, so I had to come and record early. So my brain hasn't quite been engaged yet. I do apologize. The 18-month Sculpt and Shred program, or any program of your choice, actually, if you already have that, um, all you have to do to win a Sculpted Vegan program is simply leave a review on the podcast. Just go to the episode wherever you're listening to this. Don't leave it on my website. I'm sure you guys are fed up with me saying this, but every single week, even though I say it, people go to my website and they leave a review and then they send me a picture on Instagram. And I have to say, I'm sorry, it doesn't count on the website. It has to be on, you know, Stitcher or Podbean or um, iTunes or somewhere like that. So wherever you listen to the review, leave a review there and then send me a screenshot on Instagram. That part is very important because if you leave me a review and you don't send me a screenshot on Instagram, your review will not be counted in the competition. And so every single month, we choose a winner and we announce them. And this month, it could be you. And don't forget, you can leave like four reviews a month. You can send me four reviews a month. If you're really determined to win one of those programs, you have a much higher chance of winning the more you are in it. So let's get talking about cellulite. So let me tell you a story first. I remember whenever I was, hmm, let me think, I don't know, I want to say early teens, right? And I remember going into um, my mom's bedroom one day, and she was rubbing on this cream onto her legs. I don't even know whether it's like she came home with it, or I don't think I was with her when she bought it, but it was a Christian Dior cellulite cream. Now... In those days, a Christian Dior cellulite cream would have set you back, I want to say about 50 quid, right? About 50 pounds here in Northern Ireland, which at the minute in current monetary terms is uh, is about, it's not that much because the exchange rate isn't that big, but I suppose in US dollars probably be about um, 60 US dollars at the minute, but you know, which is quite expensive for a cream. And certainly, you know, you're talking here 25 years ago, probably, maybe even slightly less, 25 years ago, like that was a lot of money to spend on a cream. And although my parents, you know, they both worked and we were reasonably affluent, you know, we we certainly weren't multimillionaires. And so, you know, my mum was rubbing this cream on her thighs and I said to her, you know, what is it that you're doing? And she said, oh, it's uh, it's this brand new, and my mom is such a sucker, I have to be honest, for anything new and shiny and, you know, and all the new creams and lotions and potions. And like, if you open her cupboard under her sink, you know, to look at her cleaning products, she will have like 500 different types of cleaning product. Whereas I'm just like, you know, one spray, one, not one sponge, but anyway, I digress. My mom is such a sucker for anything new, shiny, smelly, and, you know, all singing, all dancing. And so she said, oh, this is a new cellulite cream, you know, it's, it's supposed to be absolutely fantastic. You know, if you rub it into your legs every day, you know, in the backs of your thighs, you know, it reduces your appearance of cellulite, you know, by up to 50% or 75% or whatever it was they were claiming. And I remember saying, um, I remember thinking like, oh, I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. And I remember thinking like, I wonder what cellulite is. And it was the first time that I had ever really become aware of cellulite, right? I was, this is again, early teens. I, I want to say, I think I was maybe 13, and I, I don't think I'd ever really been aware of cellulite. But of course, now that my mom had this new and expensive cellulite cream, I began kind of to notice cellulite, you know, other places. Do you ever notice how that happens? Like you become aware of something and and then suddenly you start noticing it everywhere because, you know, it, it's in your mind. And so I, I guess, and, you know, I used to read this teen magazine called Miz whenever I was younger. And, you know, of course, then things, cellulite started popping up in these magazines. And it was, you know, how to, and of course, Sunday, you know, Sunday magazines and that kind of stuff, you know, how to know you have cellulite you know and and, you know what is cellulite and all this kind of stuff and how to get rid of cellulite most importantly and you know it taught you how to um, you know grab like a an area of your thighs. It was like, even if you can't see the cellulite, if you grab an area of your thigh and you squeeze, you know, if the skin looks, you know, dimpled like the skin of an orange, then then you have cellulite. And I was like, you know, and I remember like grabbing my thighs, you know, because I was like 13, 14. So, you know, of course I was carrying, I certainly wasn't like a beanpole when I was younger. I was, you know, developing as a woman and I was developing more body fat and that kind of stuff. And so I would grab my thighs and I would go, oh, look, yes, I have cellulite too. You know, this wasn't something you could, actually see on me. I just was like, you know, but I knew that it was there under the skin. And so I began to sneak into my mom's room and like use her Christian Dior cellulite cream. And, you know, I would rub it into my thighs every day and it smelled amazing. And it, and it had like a real silky feel to it. And it made your, you know, your legs and your skin feel really silky smooth. And um, and so, you know, I of course, then for the rest of my life, I was aware of the cellulite on the backs of my thighs and my butt. And of course, then I would stand, you know, how many of you have done this? Like you stand and you look, in a mirror, right? And you squeeze your butt really, really hard. Like you tense your muscles really hard. Like you squeeze your butt really tight. And then you notice that when you do that, you know, kind of like squeezing a lump of, you know, a lump of flesh on your thigh, like the magazines taught me to do. Whenever you squeeze your butt, then you can see all the cellulite in your butt, right? So of course I became aware of cellulite. I became aware of all these cellulite cures. And, and as I grew up, I realized that, you know, cellulite was a thing. It was a phenomenon, right? Every woman seemed to suffer from it. And of course, then you start to notice that you're at the beach, you look at other women, you look at their legs, you start to notice older women have more of it, younger women have less of it. But, you know, we're we're definitely taught from a very young age all about cellulite and how the cellulite is this great big problem that, you know, that women have. And so then what happened was I I started to compete on stage whenever I was about 37. Now, up until the age of 37, I was actually very, um, really quite lean. In my 30s, after I finished having my kids, um, what age was I whenever I had Jack? I can't remember. I think I was 30. Well, gosh, what age am I now? Of course, because Jack is eight, and I am 41. So, 41 minus eight is. 33. So I was 33 when I had Jack. Um so he was about uh I guess 3 or 4 then whenever I started training in the gym. I was 36 when I started training in the gym. But you know for those you know few years after I had Jack, I was so determined to get my body back. I was on a like a semi-starvation diet. I I really was only eating about 12 to 1400 calories a day. I steered away from all carbohydrates apart from like beans or lentils. And you know I I prided myself on the fact that I I, I had the discipline and self-control and whatever to to eat very very little food and that's why I stayed lean. But even though I was lean, I still had Cellulite on the back of my thighs, cellulite in my butt, especially when I stood and squeezed it in the mirror. You know, it was almost like I needed to confirm the presence of the cellulite. You know, standing, looking in the mirror, squeezing my bum, looking in the mirror, going, "Yes, the cellulite is still there." You know, God forbid it would be gone. And um, and so then I started training in the gym, and I was thirty six. And I food. I I first stood on stage. I food. No, I first stood on stage when I was thirty seven. And. A really funny thing happened the first time I stood on stage and I was very lean was that I noticed that my cellulite had disappeared. So even when I stood and squeezed my butt cheeks like really hard, yes, of course, there were still some dimples and stuff there, but very, very few. And you couldn't actually see the cellulite, you know, whenever I was just standing looking in the mirror. And I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. And so then I noticed over the next year, of course, I put on, you know, not a huge amount of body fat, but I I went back into really hard training after the first time I stood on stage because the next year I was determined to make my body, you know, to change my body shape, make it look even better. And so I I did put on body fat because that's what happens when you're bulking. And I noticed that my cellulite came back and, you know, I, I would look at my bum in the mirror and I'd be like, oh, I just looked, it just didn't look smooth, you know, smooth and round and all of those things that were taught that, you know, our butts need to look like smooth, you know, taut, high tight glutes, right? Like, like a fucking 12 year old, (laughs) even though we're like 40, you know, we're like, I want the glutes of a 12 year old. So um, anyway, I noticed then the next year, it was funny. I was walking up the steps. um, My husband and I went away. After I competed on stage the second year, I I did three shows and I was like super, super, super lean, like really lean. You're talking, you know, 10% body fat lean. I had veins running in rivers all over my abs. I was too lean, to be honest, if if I'm honest, although I did win my shows. So I came first, second or third in in all the different classes that I competed in. out of big, big classes. So I was pleased, but I was really, really lean. And I remember my husband and I, we went to, for a long weekend, it was actually a midweek break to Portugal um, after my show. My parents and law were staying with us from Australia. And I, he and I went away, just the two of us, for a few days because I'd been dieting and training so incredibly hard that I really just couldn't wait to get away for a few days and just, you know, relax and, and eat and drink and, and have, have fun with Ryan. And so I was walking up the stairs wearing a pair of shorts, quite short denim shorts. And he was walking behind me and he said to me, um, and, and again, this isn't a judgment. This is just, you know, bit, I was gonna, just as I was about to say it, I think you're probably going to go, oh, that's such a horrible thing to say. But anyway, I'll, I'll put it in context. What Ryan said to me, he said, he said, this is probably um, you being this lean, he said, is the really the only time that you can wear shorts this short and your legs look absolutely amazing. Now, he wasn't saying my legs didn't look bad, you know, or looked bad at any other time. And, you know, Ryan is my, my biggest supporter, but he's also my biggest realist. Like if I look like shit, Ryan will tell me I look like shit. If I look fat on the stage, he'll say you look fat on the stage. Your posing wasn't good, but I'm like he won't, you know, he won't sugarcoat it. and I don't want anyone to sugarcoat it. I want to hear the truth. Um, And so, and I laughed and I said, you know what, you're actually right. And and I said, why do they they normally look bad in shorts? He said, no, no, they don't look bad. He said, but when you wear short shorts and you're not this lean, you do have, you know, like, you know, um dimples and and kind of more like that sausage line, that sausage shape you get underneath your butt. He said, you do have that, but it's not, it's gone. He said, it's not there at the minute. And you know, your legs and your butt look absolutely amazing. And and that always stuck with me. And I thought, you know, wow, isn't that interesting that at certain times of the year, my thighs look a certain way. And at certain times of the year, when especially whenever I'm really, really lean, they they don't look a certain way. And so it, it really made me think, right, why do I have cellulite whenever I have more body fat? And why do I have cellulite when I don't have body fat? And, you know, I guess that because many women don't have these fluctuations, like a physique athlete does, where you, you know, where you're, you know, bigger and in off season, and then you're leaner in uh, whenever you're dieting, because we don't have these fluctuations, You know, most people don't have those fluctuations. The cellulite is just always there, but because I've had the benefit of these fluctuations, I I noticed that my cellulite was there when I was had more body fat, and my cellulite was gone when I had less body fat. Body fat. So it really made me think, what is cellulite like? What is it? And and. Why do I have it when I'm bigger and why do I not have it when I'm smaller? I was absolutely determined to find this out because a lot of women, you know, I was, my business was growing a lot at the time, like a huge, the sculpted vegan was really taking off. And I had a lot of women coming into my groups and saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm so excited to be here. This was in like, especially my 12 or, you know, it wasn't an 18 month program, it was just a 12 month program then. But they were saying, I'm so excited to be here. You know, my, here's my goals. My goal is to, you know, get abs or reduce this. And my goal is to get rid of my cellulite. So it was a, it was a problem for women. It was a, women that it was a problem that that women were suffering from and they were coming to me before they were purchasing the program and they were saying i have really really bad side will the program help with this and so i knew that this was a problem that women suffered from but i also knew that i had managed to combat this problem and i had managed to you know for the to get rid of the problem so i but i i didn't know how or why i had got rid of the problem yes i knew that i had reduced body fat but surely cellulite wasn't just body fat because if cellulite was just body fat then why was there a billion dollar industry selling us creams and lotions and potions to get rid of something that could just be gotten rid of with diet and exercise for free that is when I found out the truth. The truth is that cellulite isn't real. It was invented. Now, many of you have heard me talk about this before, because it is something that I'm quite passionate about. Because after I found out the truth, I was like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. Like it really, I couldn't believe it when I found it out. So right, so, so, let me just break this down a little bit for you, okay? Just, just tell you where cellulite came from. So cellulite was Invented, right, by Vogue magazine in 1968. And it has since spawned a billion dollar industry of cellulite treatments, products, cures, fascia blasters, liposuction, like you name it, it has spawned a cure. But the crazy thing is that it doesn't actually exist because there is such a thing, right, as subcutaneous fat and fibrous tissue beneath your skin. And a lot of people will say to me, well, hang on, Kim, if it doesn't exist, why the fuck can I see it right now? I'm looking in the bloody mirror right now and I can see my cellulite. So if it doesn't exist, how come I can see it? So like, just let me explain what it is. Subcutaneous fat and fibrous tissue exists beneath your skin. That is real, okay? But that is what you can see in the mirror. Because on the majority of human bodies, like subcutaneous fat and fibrous tissue just looks lumpy and bumpy. It's it's not like very few of us, unless you're like 12, like I said, or 20 or, you know, blessed with, you know, an incredible incredibly lean, naturally lean body, most of us have skin that appears dimpled or bumpy, right? But and, and that has always existed for women, always existed from the, from the start of time, from, from women, you know, were invented, if you like, you know, they've always had this thing happen in their skin. But until relatively recently, there was no word to define it because it was not a thing, right? It was just the way women's bodies were. And it was just fat, and fibrous tissue. That's all it was. Subcutaneous fat and fibrous tissue, right? And so, sorry, I need to have a, a bit of a, a swallow <laughs> because I get so excited sometimes like, and then I like trip over my own words. So here's the thing, right? Half a century ago, no one had even heard of cellulite, right? Let alone identified it as a problem to be getting rid of. Today, we spend millions, if not billions on anti-cellulite treatments, despite the glaring Lack of evidence that any of them work. So let's just think about this for a second, okay? So, my mum's um, treatment or my mum's cream, right? The Christian Dewar cream that she spent money on, did her cellulite actually go away from using it? No not one iota, and see the whole, oh, 30%, you know, less reduction, 50% reduction, 75%, you know, reduces the appearance of cellulite, appearance here, right, by like 50, 60, 70%, whatever it claims, well, like, what, what does that actually even mean, It reduces the appearance of cellulite. Surely these creams, if you're spending 50 quid a cream and you have to go through one like every week to two weeks, surely they should actually get rid of the damn thing, right? No, because you cannot treat a condition that does not exist. So here's the thing, right? Vogue became the first English language magazine to print the term cellulite, right? So they they created like both a new word and a fashionable new way for women to hate their bodies. It was actually American women at the time because, you know, Vogue didn't, I think it was big in America. It wasn't, you know, we didn't have like worldwide Italian Vogue and British Vogue and all the rest of it. Vogue was an American magazine and it, they basically just defined a whole new way for women to hate their bodies because the original and accurate definition of cellulite had absolutely nothing to do with dimples or fat but it was a medical term applied to cells or tissues in a state of inflammation or infection, right? It was actually closely related to um, something called cellulitis, which actually is still being used today when referring to pelvic infections, believe it or not, right? So the the, the term cellulite was first printed in the um, I think it was the Dictionnaire de Medicine, which is um, a French um, med- medical or um, medical dictionary, in 1873, right? By like a French doctor, um, uh, French doctor, I can't remember their name. I think it's Emile. Emile a Emile uh, Littre, and uh, I can't remember, some guy, Charles, Charles, somebody, Charles Philippe, I think his name was. Um, so basically, they they were the ones who first printed the term um, cellulite, right, the actual word cellulite in the Dictionnaire de Medicine in 1873, right? But it had nothing to do with what we associate, associate with cellulite today, absolutely, ab- utterly nothing, okay? It was a a medical term. Um, de- derived from the term cellulitis, which basically had to do, you know, with that whole pelvic region with, you know, infection or inflammation or whatever, but it really had nothing to do with fat, okay? So in, in those days, and here's the thing, in 1873 or even, you know, and, and around that time, before that, slightly after that, body fat was a sign of prosperity and of energy storage, right? Women didn't know how to hate being fat, because it was a sign of prosperity. So that's why a lot of the women, you know, when you see these French Impressionists and you see all of the, you know, the the, the paintings and the pictures and the Sistine Chapel and all that kind of stuff, all these women are lying around and they're all, you know, they're all bigger. They're, they all have, you know, um, bigger bodies. They all, you know, have like, they're, they're proud of their bellies and their thighs. I mean, you never see a skinny woman, right? Think now back to all of those impressionists that you have, all those, you know, very famous paintings. Even you're thinking of old houses filled with paintings, like, and women lying around naked or whatever. Like, they're, the women are not stick thin. There's not one stick thin woman that I can recall in a painting I've ever seen. They are all bigger. Now, when I say bigger, they're not like enormous, but I would say they're good here. UK size, you know, 14 to 16. Like, why is that? Well, it's because body fat was a sign of prosperity. Okay. Women really didn't know that they shouldn't be fat or that they should hate being fat. They just, they just, that's just the way they were. So, but when it all changed was after World War One, right? Women's roles changed and they were called into the workplace because up until World War One, obviously, you know, women, um, a woman's place, you know, obviously there were women who worked in the more working classes. And I know there isn't such a class system in America, but I guess there is a bit. But over here in the UK, and certainly part of Great Britain, there is, um, well, I'm, an, I'm in Ireland, but Northern Ireland is actually part of the UK, even though I call myself Irish, it is part of the UK. And we have a very kind of set class system over here. And I know that a lot of the working class women did actually work, but it wasn't seen as a woman's place to work. It was seen as a woman's place to stay at home and keep the children, look after her husband and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, after World War I, women were called into the workplace, which meant that they have more freedom, more power, more disposable income, right? So, you know, and and what did patriarchy decide to do? Well, we decided, or patriarchy decided to tell them how to spend that extra cash. So let's think about this for a second. Women, after they were called into the workplace, had more freedom, more power. They were more independent thinkers, and they had more disposable income. And what else is there to do but tell a woman how to spend her cash. So let's think about this for a second, right? Who would stand to gain from women hating their bodies and believing they have a problem? Well, not women, that's for sure. <laughs> whenever I, you know, I look at something or whenever I'm evaluating something or I'm evaluating things that are say even something happens in the world on a macro scale, I always ask myself the question, who would stand to gain? It's a really, really good question to ask yourself. So who would have stood to gain from women hating their bodies? It wasn't women, I can tell you that much. So I find digressing a little bit into the story of like where cellulite, you know, came from and 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 how it was spawned. But so I want to ask the question now, to get back to my original point: What actually is cellulite? Okay. Well, let's break it down in kind of more scientific terms. So beneath your skin, there is a layer of fat held in place by fibrous tissue, okay, which forms a kind of net. So sometimes fat cells get clumped together and pushed through the holes in the netting, creating like visible bumps and dimples on your skin. And that is really all all that cellulite is. So like the more fat you have, the more fat is likely to get pushed through the um the fibrous tissue. So basically, <clears throat> excuse me, this fibrous tissue, it, it forms a kind of like it is a, like a kind of net. I always like imagine it to be like a like a pair of stockings, right? So you put on a pair of stockings and you can see they're really, really finely um held together by a mesh. That's kind of how the fat is is held together underneath your skin. And the more fat you have, the more it gets pushed through the netting. It's kind of like if you're trying to squeeze yourself. Say you have like huge, big fat legs and you're trying to squeeze them into a really skin tight pair of leggings, right? Well, you know, they're going to, the, the leggings are going to stretch and they're going to pull in different areas and you're going to get that line at the back of your thighs. And it's going to be, you know, you're going to be squeezing more fat into the area than should have been there in the first place naturally. So of course, it's going to get pushed through your skin. And here's the thing as well, right? Cellulite can affect both men and women, but it is more common in females just simply due to the different distributions of fat, muscle and connective tissue. Because in women, the fat cells and connective tissue are actually arranged vertically. So they they run in a, in a straight line down your body. But in, in men, the tissue has more of a crisscross structure, which may explain why they're less likely to have cellulite. Than women. So men's tissues are actually made up in a completely different way to women's. So women's run vertically, and men's run in a crisscross. So a crisscross is much more likely to hold everything under the skin, and in in a vertical line. If you can imagine, you know, little bits gets pushed to the side and. And, you know, and and you can imagine the line doesn't run straight, it goes down and then it goes out one way and then it goes over the other way and it goes over the other way. It's kind of a little more squiggly than than men's. And so that is why they have women, probably that is why women have more cellulite. But like I said, it doesn't, exist, cellulite doesn't really exist, guys. It's just fat, okay? But we call it cellulite because that's the term that's been applied to it. But basically, it's just in women, their fat cells push through the tissue in a completely different way to men's, okay? It's not cellulite. It's just fat. Now, other things that contribute to the appearance of cellulite are hormones. So hormones likely play an important role in cellulite development. I mean, estrogen, insulin, adrenaline, thyroid hormones, prolactin, all of those things are all part of the cellulite production process or basically the fat production process. Because as you know, well, there's a lot of theories around this, but like they don't actually, not not a lot has been proven in science, but you know, estrogen in women decreases as they approach menopause. Okay. And whenever you approach Approach menopause and your estrogen levels decrease, blood flow to the connective tissue under the skin also decreases. So this is something that they have proven, they have seen time and time again. You know, basically things stop flowing the way they used to whenever you were younger, which could be menopause or which could just be getting older. Okay. As you get older, things just don't work as well as they used to whenever you were younger. But definitely blood flow does decrease to the connective tissue under the skin. And so lower circulation means less oxygen in the area, resulting in lower collagen production. So collagen is basically, you know, the the binding agent which keeps everything firm and plump and wrinkle-free and, you know, going up rather than going down and so you know all of those all of those things contribute to what we call cellulite or the appearance of cellulite and here's the other clinker right you ready for this one fat cells also enlarge as estrogen levels fall so you know a lot of women complain about you know the middle age spread around menopause and they always say all right menopause it's you know it's so much harder to lose body fat and And it's not even that it's harder to lose body fat. It's just that your body composition changes. So, you know, what what used to work years ago or what, you know, where... You could have, you know, gone on a diet and lost body fat really quickly and stuff. All these different things change whenever you're older. And it's not that you get more cellulite or anything like that. It's just that you just don't have as much blood flow to the skin because of the fall of estrogen. And also because your fat cells enlarge, they just get bigger, unfortunately. And what happens when they get bigger? It means they can store more fat. So if you eat more, Whenever you're older, or if, even if you eat the same amount as you used to eat when you were younger, uh, you know, and you're not burning it off in the same way you're not as active, which we aren't naturally as active whenever we're older, unless you unless you choose to be. We're not naturally as active. We are tireder. You know, we don't have as much energy and all that kind of stuff. And all the estrogen production and, and um, menopause and everything really does play a huge role in that. but also, you know very annoyingly, your fat cells enlarge. And when your fat cells are larger, they can hold more fat. So all of these factors combine to making you know the fat deposits more visible. and and as the fat under the skin protrudes, you know, through the weakening connective tissue, the familiar dimpling effect results. So basically, it's not even that you have more fat, which you do probably a little bit. If if you if you overeat or you eat a little a little too much and you exercise too little, then you will store more fat. But it, storing more fat isn't normally an issue because in young girls, like if you look at te- young teenage girls or or you know um, tweens, you know, I didn't even know what that meant. Although I was like, what the hell is a? Tw- queen. It's it's like someone who I think is in like their early twenties or their like late teens, moving into their twenties, and they call them tweens. So um tweens, you know, even if they do put on body fat, they don't have that real cellulite wrinkled, dimpled you know, um, effect that you know we get whenever we're older, and that's simply because they have more collagen, they have more estrogen, and um, the you know the fats, the fat deposits aren't as visible because the connective tissue as well hasn't been all you know pushed and you know wobbled to the side after years of of holding more body fat, and so that means that um, the skin is is less likely to sag and all that kind of stuff, and so as we get older, you know the skin becomes less elastic, it becomes thinner, it becomes more likely to sag, which basically just seems to increase the chance of cellulite developing. So (laughs) it's like, see, as as I dived into all of this research and I began to realize all of the scientific reasons why cellulite in the verticomis exists and how cellulite really actually isn't even a thing. You know, I really was like, oh my God, like this thing that women have been struggling to combat and struggling to overcome for years It doesn't actually exist. It's just fat. And that's why whenever I was prepping for my show, the fat disappeared. So as I got bigger during the year, I had more fat. And as I got smaller you know, for for a show, especially down to very low percentages of body fat, like my cellulite disappeared. Because here's the thing, right? If cellulite was a thing in itself, surely it would have still been there even when I had 10% body fat. Surely my skin would still have been dimpled and if I squeezed it, surely I would have still have had that orange peel effect, okay? And now, if I did stand and squeeze my bum in the mirror, like squeeze it really, really hard, of course, I did still have some orange peel effect because I still had fat in my bum because I'm a woman, okay? And that's where I tend to carry. My fat in my bum and my thighs—I'm a very natural pear shape. But what I realized was, as I put on the, as I put on body fat, I, my cellulite got more, and as I lost body fat, the body fat, the cellulite got less. And having this information really made me want to shout it from the rooftops through women everywhere because women everywhere come to me and go, "How can I get rid of my cellulite?" And I go, "Just just lose body fat." And they go, "No, no, but it can't be as simple as that." And I'm like, "What if it can? What if it's society?" that has told you that this is a problem that will either never go away or that you need to spend, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars to fix. And what if that is not true? What if you can massively reduce the appearance of cellulite and eradicate it potentially, depending on how much body fat you lose, simply by hard work, simply by hard work. And it really is quite astounding to many women whenever they realize this. But here's one thing I want to ask you, right? Just to take it right back to, you know, where this all began. Like, why did women believe or, or yeah, why did women believe that they should look a certain way? Like, when, when did we start caring about what, about how we looked? Okay. Or, or, you know, or, or why, when did we start thinking that cellulite was bad or that, you know, being, fatter was bad and being thinner was better. Because years ago, like I said, being overweight was a sign of prosperity. It was a sign of, um, you know, women wanted to be overweight. And this, and if you saw a lovely round plump woman, just like, you know, today people are like, oh, you know, they're lovely seeing lovely plump babies, because we still have the social conditioning that a plump baby is one that is well fed and that won't die from malnutrition. And this all, you know, comes from years and years and years ago um you know whenever food was scarce and and people had to work hard and and you never wanted to see a really thin child because a thin child was more likely to develop disease um and and to basically and to not to not prosper or to potentially die okay and you know obviously and I'm talking hundreds of years ago here especially in, in the UK and London and Ireland and the potato famine and all that kind of stuff you know there's been a lot of horrors um, in our country I mean I know there has in other parts of the world too but you really wanted to always have like a lovely plump child and you know definitely fat was seen as a sign of prosperity so when, when did we When did that change for us, okay? Because I think that to understand cellulite and how it even came into existence and why you do not have a problem with cellulite because it doesn't actually exist, I think it's important to understand where it came from. So one of the things I was thinking about whenever... I was planning this podcast was Mary Poppins, right? The movie Mary Poppins. Many of, many of us are familiar with Mary Poppins, right? And so, and I, I used to love, um, what was her name? Winifred, Winifred Banks. Winifred Banks was, you know, Mr. Banks's, uh, George Banks's wife, right? And she was a real firecracker. I absolutely loved her. And, you know, whenever she's singing, you know, like the suffragettes and, you know, and... Um, Emmeline is at Pankhurst has been clapped in irons again. And you know, whenever you're younger, you know, you're you're watching this and you're you're seeing these women, you know, dance around the kitchen and and you know, and wear her sashes and she's going off, you know, to, to fight vote for um or to fight for women's right to vote and all this, but it really doesn't mean anything whenever you're a young girl. But if you dig if you if you dive deep into the history of that and where, you know, what Winifred Banks was actually campaigning for and what she was joining, it was a movement of women. Now I think that that I think that um Mary Poppins was set in 1910. So it was before the First World War. The First World War didn't start until 1914. So it was before the First World War. And in 1910, believe it or not, women did not have the right to vote. So that's what the suffragettes um, were fighting for. They were fighting for women's right to vote. And women didn't actually get the right to vote until 1918, it was, right? 1918, when women over the age of 30 who owned property, right, were given the right to vote. But they had to fight really, really hard for that. I think that the suffragettes started fighting for women's right to vote. I think it was at the end of the 19th century. I think it was in like in 18, I think about 1897 Um, when my research took me. It was around that time that they started fighting, but it wasn't until nearly like, you know, 10 or 20 years later in 1918 that they actually got the vote and it was only women over the age of 30 and it wasn't actually until believe it or not the Equal Franchise Act in 1928 that women over the age of 21 were given the same voting rights as men which actually increased the number of women who were eligible to vote I think to over about 15 million that was in 1928 like that was a you know that was a a, a good 10 years later so But here's here's a question for you, right? So if women didn't actually get to vote up until until 1918, here in Great Britain anyway, if they didn't have the right to vote until 1918, who do you think set the standards of what a woman should look like? Well, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say it would be the men. Now, this is not a feminist podcast, by the way. I love men. I'm married to a man. I've actually, whenever I was younger, I wanted to be a man. I have very, very male tendencies. I have, so I'm not like, oh, the man. And I know you all love my, somebody wrote to me the other day. Okay, my love, you're a wicked, wicked witch of the West voice. sound I'm like, oh, the man. It was the man, <laughs> The men who who were like oppressing us. And, and it's not that it was, it was the men who were oppressing us. Like, you know, let's not get all feminist here. It was basically just the way society was. It was social conditioning. But, you know, who do you think, decided up until 1918, or even before that, when it started to change, who do you think it was that decided what a woman should look like? Well, I would guess that it was probably the men. The men wanted. Like, do you think that a woman wanted to wear a corset? Like, think about it. Has how how many of you have worn a corset before, either for a photo shoot or for a night out? Or like, I remember years ago I wore a corset right to a wedding, and it looked absolutely amazing. It was this beautiful. I never wear pink, but it was this beautiful pink satin outfit it was a, a pink satin pencil skirt with a pink satin corset now it wasn't like you know really um it didn't look like um uh what do you call it? like a burlesque you know dancer or anything um it was very classy uh but it was a beautiful outfit but it was this corset and I remember you know trying it on going oh my god yes this is absolutely amazing this is perfect well here let me tell you something see by the time I got to the dinner that night I couldn't breathe. I couldn't eat. I couldn't breathe my, you know, the corset had taken on the shape of my body. So I had this like this, this really tiny waist and, you know, which then, it was boned and everything at the time. Um, which obviously I wasn't vegan then, wasn't wearing bones in my clothes. And uh, and so it was uh, and I don't know whether it was real bones or anything. I think it's called boned, but I think it's actually I think I think it's a man-made material they use. But anyway, I digress. This corset was so uncomfortable. Even on my wedding day, right? I remember on my wedding day, I bought um my wedding dress was was corseted. It was a I um I absolutely love my wedding dress. It was it was beautiful, just full straight skirt, and it was um it it, had, it was strapless and it had, but it was corseted right on the inside. And I remember whenever I tried it on, I was like, oh my God, I love this dress. And I, and my mum said to me, are you going to get like a dress for the evening to wear, you know, for the evening? And I was like, no way, I've spent so much money on this dress. And I'm going to wear this dress all day. It's going to be amazing. Well, boy, did I regret that decision. I felt so sick by the time I got to the meal part of our wedding, I couldn't even eat. And Whenever I sat down, like standing up in a corset is fine, but if you've ever worn a corset and you've tried to sit down in it, like when you sit down, your stomach protrudes. That's what happens. It was so deeply uncomfortable. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. Oh my God, I had to dance in this. Of course, it was my wedding, so I had to, you know, well, I didn't have to, but I was, you know, dancing, drinking. I really wanted to enjoy it, you know, and whatever. And I really regretted wearing this, this dress, but more than anything, I really regretted wearing the corset. And that's always my advice to, to women now who are getting married. I'm like, either choose a really comfortable wedding dress, preferably one without a corset, or choose, or get something that you can change into for the evening, do because you really will want to be comfortable in the evening. You know, whenever you're you know running around with your guests and stuff. So anyway, I digress. Corsets, right? Who the hell invented a corset? I can tell you something. It wasn't a woman there's no woman in her right mind would invent that torture device for other women to wear you wouldn't unless you were some kind of sadist because you know of course is obviously designed to give you a tiny waist it's designed to give you that hourglass figure right even today like I find myself in my marketing I'm promoting you know I'm trying to build this hourglass figure with muscles right I want to give myself wider shoulders smaller waist you know, bigger thighs and booty to give myself this beautiful hourglass shape. But like, have we ever even considered where did that come from? Like, where did that come from? Where, when did women decide that they that their shape should look a certain way? Like, we, you know, I don't believe that we have these standards for men. Yes, of course, we may prefer our men to have broad shoulders and muscular chests and and all this kind of stuff. But like, when did we decide that a real woman looks a certain way? Well, I would guess that because women didn't actually get the vote until 1980 that it was and I'm not sure when it was in America but you know I would guess that it was before 1918 when the men were mostly in charge and had the right to vote and and decided on you know how things were done I I guess it was them I would imagine it was them who decided what a woman should look like and I, I was listening to a, a book the other day actually um I can't remember what it was it was one of my audible books and it was about oh I know it was Simon Sinek um Actually, I don't think it's called Cynic. I think, uh, uh, because he's reading the book, and I've only ever read his books, not um, not actually uh, listened to them in Audible. Now, Simon Sinek, if you don't know his, uh, no, is it Simon Sinek? Oh, no, it wasn't Simon Sinek. And now, oh, Matthew, Matthew sid S-Y-E-D, Matthew Sid. Now, if you don't know Matthew Sidd, you should look him up. His books are incredible. There's one called The Myth of Talent and the Power of Practice. That was the first ever one that I read. He was a, a an Olympic table tennis champion. It was actually one of the the first books that I read that, that made me believe that it was okay to take my kids out of school. And he talked about how, anyway, just read it. It's incredible. The myth of talent and the power of practice. So I've read all of his books so far. There's another one called Black Box Thinking, which is incredible, which teaches you how to think outside the box. And it, it really examines a lot of industries. And of course, now I can't remember the name of his most recent book, but I was listening to it the other day. And as I was walking and he was talking about how... Um, Oh, it's about diversity. It's about, again, more about thinking outside the box and about how, you know, um, actually embracing a culture of, you know, different backgrounds and different thinkers and different ethnic, um, ethnic, I can't think of the word, ethnicity? Ethn- whatever. Anyway, those you know ethnically diverse people actually is so good for business and for industry and whatever. And he was talking about I think it was in Sweden how they began to um they wanted to reduce the I think it was the strain on the healthcare system, and so they were looking at all different ways they could reduce the, the strain on the healthcare system, and they began to look believe it or not at the the roads system. So they began to look at the system of the roads and about how they realized that how um, I'm not going to do it justice because I was walking listening to it, but I'll tell you briefly the about how in Sweden they um there's a lot of i think it was in sweden there's a lot of snow right every year and so they they realized that for years and years and years i don't know how long but a lot of years i think from like the 40s or 50s the policy had been that the um the snow plows or the snow clearers went out and cleared the roads okay but they didn't really concentrate so much on the footpaths they concentrated on the roads and that um but what they realized in the healthcare system was that the majority of accidents that were coming into A&E in the healthcare system were from pedestrians and whenever they looked at the system what they realized was years ago there were no women who sat on the committee who made the decisions you know for the in the the transport committee they it was only men and at the time men got up in the morning got into their car and drove to work but women were much more likely to uh, to take public transport and they were also walking with prams and they also realized that women whenever they um, whenever they went they didn't get up in the morning and drive from A to B you know from you know a commute into the city they usually drop kids off to school then they went to visit a relative then they picked up groceries and then they went you know and then they went to work or they did the opposite way around they went to work and then they you know they made lots of different trips on the way home and so they didn't just go from A to B and what they realized was that if they actually put you know there was a lot more accidents coming from pedestrians from women you know from actu- well, not even just women but mostly women you know getting out of their car going into the supermarket get, you know visiting a relative of delivering this, picking up kids. And that's where a lot of the slipping and the accidents and, and you know, the, the strain on the healthcare system was coming from and there was actually very, very few coming from road accidents. And they realized that that because men with a very single-minded a very myopic view, not because from from any badness, but all, they couldn't see anything beyond their own scope. They couldn't see how, they, they had no idea what the women were doing and all they saw was they get into the car in the morning, they went from A to B from their house to work and back again. So that's where they spent the money on the infrastructure Whereas, whenever they examined this, a whole other part that had been ignored because it was just outside of their scope of thinking, they um, they began to spend money on there, and they massively reduced the um, the the healthcare, the, the 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 strain on the healthcare. And I thought that was so interesting and it really made me think about this in this podcast I was going to do about how, you know, before women had the vote, it was men who were setting the standards. It was the men who were setting the standards for what women should look like, men who were, you know, the the designing the women's clothes, men who were designing corsets, men who were designing all of these different things. And so women didn't really have a say or a view in what it was that they they should look like or they should wear. They just kind of went along, you know, with the social conditioning that, you know, in the society that they were living in. But new ideas about female appearance began to, you know, which, which kind of began in World War One. So women went into work in World War One. It was the first time in World War I that they were called into the workplace, right? And so this is when new ideas about female appearance started to appear. Because if you think about it, up until then, women were in full skirts, corsets, you know, um, long sleeves, high necks. And so, but that kind of stuff didn't really you know, didn't really cross over well into the workplace because, you know, if you've ever walked around in a corset and a full skirt and something high-necked, you'll realize it's extremely uncomfortable, right? It's extremely uncomfortable and it's really not a good um, outfit for working in. And so new ideas about women, what women should look like and how they should dress and all that kind of stuff began to appear in kind of you know in World War One, but they became full-blown beauty standards in World War II. So there was really only, you know, 20 years between World War One and World War II. And what women realized in World War II was that nobody wanted an hourglass shape anymore. Okay? Women did not want an hourglass shape. And so what happened was they rebelled by going in the opposite direction. So, you know, defiance is defined as you know, I, not even defined as, but if you think about defiance, what defiance is, I need to know what you are to know what I'm not. We see this in teenagers all the time. I was a very defiant teenager. You know, as a teenager, you just want to be independent. But even saying that you're independent suggests dependency. Well, why is this? Because if, say you're my parent, say I'm like 14, right? And I'm looking at you and you're my parent and you are conservative and, um, wear your hair in a certain way. Let's just talk about physical characteristics. You wear your hair in a certain way. You're quite conservative. You don't wear a fake tan. You're, you know, you don't wear a lot of makeup or whatever. And if I, if I want to uh, say you're quite controlling, right? Say you make your children go to bed at a certain time. And most people would just call that normal. But to me, I call that controlling. So um, say, let's say you, you know, you you live in an authoritarian paradigm with your kids, which basically means you decide that they go to school when they get up, when they go to bed, you have set mealtimes. They're not allowed to not eat certain things. You know, you control, your children's lives right well the reason why teenage rebellion exists is simply because the children rebel against c- control people always say to me about my kids oh you're gonna have trouble with them when they're teenagers and I'm like I have teenagers I have two of them my kids are the sweetest most beautiful most wonderful human beings in the world who tell me they love me on a daily basis there is no defiance there is no rebellion why because there's nothing to rebel against we when they want something they come to me we discuss it they know I would never stop them from having what they want they know that I am their their supporter and their friend. And if I say that's really not a good idea, I don't think, you know, smoking isn't a good idea and here's why, or maybe it might be not a good idea to get your ear pierced, you know, but you can decide to do it if you want, but let me give you the data, you know, as to, you know, why that might not be a good idea and whatever. They listen to me and they, they know I'm not trying to control them. So they've nothing to defy, but When you try to control people, when when men try to control women, or when parents try to control teenagers, they rebel, right? And they defy. So, but if you never try to control someone, then they've nothing to defy. So, but basically independence or defiance basically says, I need to know what you are, right? Or what you expect me to be so I can be the opposite. So, I'm dependent on you. I'm dependent on knowing who you are, what you want, and what you like to know what is the opposite? Does that make sense? Like so it's independence is a complete misnomer. People think that independence exists. It really doesn't. If you're dependent on someone to know what they are so you can be the opposite, then, you know, and be independent, you're never really independent. You're still dependent on them. And so this is what happened with with women happens today with teenagers is what happened with women. They needed to know it was like they, they knew what they were expected to be. They knew what the men wanted them to look like. They knew what they were expected to do and they rebelled and they defied it. And so um, basically women, instead of being, you know, round and full and having hourglass figures and all that kind of stuff, they decided they were going to be the opposite. And so what became popular after World War II? Becoming tubular thin, Tubular thin. Everybody, you know, the concept of dieting became popularized, um, which which with it came like a mindset of determination, right? Up until then, women were supposed to be acquiescent. We were supposed to be, you know, pretty and and you know, and and demure and entertaining and you know, and and all of these things, but we weren't supposed to be um we weren't supposed to be determined. We weren't supposed to be. Have a lot of personal achievement, you know. We weren't supposed to have self discipline dedication and courage and all of those things. But after the world wars, after World War One and then especially World War Two, everything changed because women's roles changed. Right, the men were very damaged from World War Two, and and women really had to step up in you know step up to society to take on a lot of the the male. Roles, the traditional male roles, and, and it, it completely and utterly transformed the way women were. Okay. So being extremely lean and, and thin became seen as like a personal achievement by society and especially by women. You know, being fit and lean was considered, like I said, a matter of self discipline and dedication and courage. Being womanly, in inverted commas, was no longer a good thing. Right. So body fat stopped being seen as a sign of prosperity and, you know, and, and, And more than anything, being fat started being seen as a symbol of weakness, laziness and personal failure. And even today, that exists that exists today we're like oh she's so fat and lazy and even we call ourselves that as well oh my god it's like self-judgment and by the way you don't judge anyone else unless you judge yourself that way so if i'm like she's so fat and lazy it's because i i think that i am fat and lazy it, or if i allowed myself to be a certain way then it would be because i'm fat and lazy so we have this thing of being fat is bad having extra body fat is bad and not only is it bad because it doesn't look good because we've been taught that cellulite is a is a thing but also it's not good because we have all this self-judgment right we have all this judgment on ourselves about how we're supposed to be and we're supposed to be disciplined and courageous and you know and and dedicated and strong and listen and listen I understand the irony here okay because I'm one of the biggest supporters of these kinds of things I am like one of the ones who's always saying you know women need to have more discipline and more whatever but like where did that even come from like you know it's and it's okay to do the right thing for the wrong reason by the way I'm not going to start changing my message and going yeah you should all just be really chilled and just love your bodies and be fat like I do think that you should love your body but also I think that, you know, like, muscles and being lean or whatever it is a sign of discipline and and whatever and, and you should have self-discipline and you should have you know courage and strength and all those things but not because society tells you so or but not because you're like being defiant or you're you know you're going in the opposite of something but because it's bloody well good for you that's why it's good for you mentally it's good for you physically it's good for you spiritually right it's good for your kids to see that modeled so but but let me ask you a quick question right so when did body fat stop being a sign of prosperity and energy source? right? Not even when, but why? Why did it stop being, you know, a sign of prosperity? Two words, right? Social conditioning. Social conditioning. It was this women. So, in after World War II, women decided we are not going to be that way. We're going to go the opposite, and we're going to go this way. And then that just became a thing. It wasn't that we woke up in the morning and decided, okay, I have evaluated my life. I have evaluated my, um, you know, my my uh, my tendencies. I have evaluated my my patterns of behavior, my postulates that I built as a child. I have evaluated all of these things, and I have decided that I am this way. No. We're just like, we learn it from our parents, we learn it from our grandparents, we learn it from our teachers, we learn it from our friends. It's good to be this way. It's not good to be this way, right? And here's the thing that's going to shock you. the most. I'm not going to shock you the most because I've said some pretty shocking things on here before, but cellulite became the most visible hallmark of failure. Cellulite became the most visible hallmark of failure. Success, right, was seen as being disciplined, um, courageous, determined, lean, thin, all of those things, right? A hard worker. That became the benchmark of success. And the opposite of success, let's call it failure, was seen as being fat, lazy, um, undisciplined, unmotivated, all of these different things. So years ago, all of those things, I mean, there was no, there was no, you know, undisciplined or unmotivated. Women didn't even know to adhere to or to aim for those standards. They wanted to be slightly overweight because it was a sign of prosperity, but then social conditioning flipped it on its head and made that bad and made this new muscular lean determined woman better. Okay. And cellulite is and was then and still is the most visible hallmark of that failure. And as the new standard of female beauty took like took root across the western world, so did the panic over cellulite. Like don't forget cellulite wasn't invented until the 1960s, right? In fact, the headline used by Vogue, right, in ni- in the 1968 article that they published on cellulite was cellulite, the fat you could not lose before. So like the myth of cellulite had gone mainstream right and and so had had its mythical causes and cures <laughs> mythical causes and cures because but the, the thing about it is right it, and and it still remains even today like women are still using fascia blasters and creams it's not fat it's fascia you know i'm like that one drives me insane fascia blasters seriously women stop using it right cellulite's just fat no amount of Rubbing a painful, you know, like spiky object over your legs is going to get rid of your cellulite, okay? It's just a marketing tool. Fascia blasters, creams, lotions, potions, you know, like, oh my God, what's the other one? Like liposuction, all of these therapies, right? To combat cellulite, it doesn't exist, right? Cellulite is a myth. It doesn't actually, it doesn't actually exist. In 1968, Vogue invented it, cellulite, the fat you could not lose before. And then when we're looking at their thighs going, I never even noticed that before. Oh, well, fuck me, you don't say, right? Because we didn't know to notice it because it wasn't a thing. We didn't know it was a problem until we were told it was a problem. And now we spend billions of dollars every single year trying to get rid of something we didn't even know was a problem and doesn't actually exist because it's just fat. (laughs) So by this point, you may be thinking, well, Kim, It's all very well and good, and I really enjoyed your little narrative here on the podcast. But I actually do have cellulite, and I only listen to this podcast because I really want to know how to get rid of it. And (laughs) can you just tell me that before you go? Like, now that I know I don't need to care about it, can you just tell me how to get rid of it so I don't have to see it while I'm not caring (laughs) about it? Okay, totally get it, okay? Totally get it. So I'm going to tell you how to get rid of it. Are you ready? Right, so there is basically, I have to tell you something first, there's virtually no way to honestly cure cellulite, right? There's no way to market a cure for cellulite. I can't market you a cure for cellulite here in this podcast because there is no cure because there is nothing to cure, right? There's nothing to cure. So here's the thing, reducing fat intake Will basically mean having less fat to push through the connective tissue. That that's really all it is. And not only that, but if you build up the muscles in your glutes and your hamstrings and your legs, this will reduce the fat and, and smooth out your legs and make the area appear less dimpled and wrinkled even more. Like that's one thing that I have done. I have I have built up, you know, a huge amount of muscle in my glutes and especially in my hamstrings. On the backs of my legs and on my quads. My hamstrings are huge as well. Not huge, but they're big. And so people say to me, you know, how do you get cut legs all year? Because when all year round I have lovely, you know, well-defined muscles in my legs. And you can see my quads. And people always ask me, like, how do you get that? And I'm like, you know, you don't get it, you just build muscle. And so even though when I'm carrying extra body fat, which I am at the minute because I'm in a bulking phase, even when I'm carrying extra body fat, I, I, my legs still have really, really good shape. But that's simply because of the volume of muscle. That I have. So the more, you know, I think the problem is a lot of women, you know, whenever they, they get rid of cellulite, your women have said to me, Oh, but Kim, I, I did lose loads and loads of fat. And yes, my cellulite did reduce, but my skin was so saggy and wrinkly, and I, my legs really didn't look good once the cellulite is gone. And I think that this is one of the myths that we're sold is that once the cellulite goes, then your legs will look absolutely amazing. But that isn't true. That isn't true because you know you your legs will only look amazing if you fill them up with muscle at the same time as reducing the body fat. So you have to focus on building muscle and reducing fat at the same time, because if you reduce fat from underneath the skin, yes, the skin is going to get saggy. But if you fill it up with muscle, then the skin will stretch out again. There's no wrinkles on a balloon, okay? There's no wrinkles on a balloon because the balloon is lovely and full and stretched because there's loads of air in it. So if you want to reduce the cellulite on the backs of your thighs and on your glutes, then you have to fill it up with muscle. And if you're not prepared to do the work that it takes to fill it up with muscle, then basically, you just have to accept the fact that, yes, you can go on a huge diet and lose body fat, but your legs will really, or your glutes or wherever you hold the diet, will really never completely transform. Never completely transform. I mean, we're releasing on the 11th of June this year, in 2020, we're releasing a, a brand new program, okay? A brand new um, program for building the glutes. I'm not going to tell you any more about it now, but it is releasing 11th of June Um, Okay, I'll tell you the name. It's called the Eight Week Butt Camp, okay? The Eight Week Butt Camp. And basically what this program is designed to do, it can be done from home or the gym. Um, What this program is designed to do is to really sculpt the glutes, right? It's to build up a huge amount of muscle in the glutes. I have completely transformed my glutes from, they were like this sad, saggy little affair, Um, you know, in 2016 to now in 2020, they are like completely different. They are about literally five times the size. Now you're not gonna have glutes like my, Nine, five times the size in eight weeks. But this program is the foundation. It's a it's a sculpting glutes and a shred at the same time. So you're gonna build up your glutes, but you're also gonna shred body fat using a very systematic approach, exactly the same approach that I use to shred for the stage. So you're gonna do an athlete-style shred with timed nutrition to build up. Um, the muscle and the glutes. It can be a program that can be cycled over and over and over again, progressively overloading with weight and with volume um, to, you know, you you could use it for the next year, right? You can just cycle it every eight weeks and you can use it for the next year and you could completely and Utterly transform your glutes. Okay. And, but the reason why I've developed this program, I, I could have marked it, marketed my point is, I could have marketed it as a cellulite reduction program, but it's, it's really not a cellulite reduction program. And I, I think I do say in the marketing, and we have said, like, you know, you will reduce cellulite because what people just don't know that cellulite is fat, right? But if you want to change your glutes and you want to tra- change your hamstrings and the backs of your legs, then you need to focus on building muscle and shredding away body fat at the same time. And that is exactly what this program is designed to do. It's the first time I've ever released a program, actually, that just focuses on the glutes. But the glutes are a massive, massive muscle group in the body, huge muscle group in the body. And in this program, you work them six days a week, OK, from all different sides, the vertical plane, the horizontal plane, the diagonal plane. I learned that from Brett Contreras. Um, and actually, he has endorsed the program. I sent him the, the program last week and I was like, what do you think? And he was like, this program is epic. He said, oh, my God, I, he said, it's so good. I could have written it myself. And I was like, "Yay!" I was like, felt so affirmed you know, because he is like the glute guy. We, we interviewed him here last week on the podcast. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to last week's podcast, um, interview with Brett Contreras, all about glute building. If you're into glute building, definitely a good one to listen to. But So the reason why I have developed this program is simply because the only way to really transform your glutes is to build muscle and burn fat at the same time. Losing body fat won't help because it'll just mean that your your glutes and your hamstrings and the area that has cellulite, yes, the cellulite fat, aka fat, will reduce, but it won't give you a lovely smooth appearance. The only way to get the smooth appearance and to completely change your body like I have done mine and eradicate cellulite is simply to build muscle and burn fat at the same time. Time. So if you really want to get rid of your cellulite, that's exactly what you have to focus on. There's no other way to do it. Stop buying creams, stop buying lotions, stop buying fascia blasters, stop massaging the area and all that. Massaging the area does nothing. Okay. Nothing. Well, apart from increasing blood flow to the area. So if you are postmenopausal and you have um, you know, and you're Estrogen levels are dropping, then something like a Theragun or, you know, some kind of, um, you know, definitely a lymph training or a deep tissue massage is good for the area, not to get rid of cellulite, but to boost circulation. Because, you know, how uh, we were saying that blood flow to um, the cell tissues actually reduces whenever estrogen drops. So you want to do anything you can to increase the blood flow to that area. And that's basically what fascia blasters and all that kind of stuff do. They basically just increase the blood flow, but they don't tell you that, right? They don't say increase the. The reason why you have cellulite, AKA fat, in your thighs is because you have you know, enlarged fat cells and reduced, you know, blood flow to the area and all that. No, 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 they don't tell you that. They just, they they still perpetuate the myth that cellulite is a thing. Cellulite's not a thing. You do want to increase circulation as much as possible. You want to be drinking as much water as possible, eating really, really good nutritious food, staying away from animal fat, from saturated fat, all of the stuff that you already know. Eat less, exercise more, go for long walks, right? You know, get get yourself on a plan, stick to the plan consistently and you will give yourself great look King. Thighs and butt, if that's important to you. But let me tell you something: don't forget that social conditioning is a thing. And if if you're like, you know, what I'm just happy with how I look, and I'm gonna, des- I'm just gonna decide to love my body, cellulite, fat, and dimples and wrinkles and everything and all, then I salute you, girl. I salute. I sound American there. I salute you, girl. I salute you. So I sl- like I do. I salute you. I think it's absolutely and utterly fantastic. I think that the two are not mutually exclusive. I get a lot of flack on Instagram sometimes. People say to me, you know, oh, you're you're. T- teaching women to you know love you must have body dysmorphia you're teaching women to hate their bodies i'm like no 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 i'm totally not the two are not mutually exclusive like you can love yourself as i do but still want to change your body i love myself like, i i i love myself i love who i am i love who i've become i love my body i love my life i like i i can truly say i have an enormous amount of self esteem and confidence and i but i still i still enjoy putting an effort and getting a result and seeing the changes in my body. You don't have to hate yourself to want to change your body. You can love yourself and want to change your body. And in fact, loving yourself and wanting to change your body is actually what will make you successful. You know, hating yourself will create a bad feeling. You want to change your body to get rid of the bad feeling. Once the bad feeling goes away, then you'll just go back to your old habits. So quite often people diet because they look in the mirror and they admit what they see makes them feel bad. So they go on a diet or they do something different or whatever. Then once the bad feeling goes away, they've lost their motivation to, to, to keep going. So you have to ask yourself, are you motivated by the carrot or the stick? I'm always motivated by the carrot. I'm always motivated by the toward. I'm always moving towards something rather than away from something. When you move away from something, you're less likely to succeed in it because you're just moving away from fear or a bad feeling. And once the fear or the bad feeling goes away, so will the motivation. If you can find motivation to move towards something, it will completely and utterly transform your life and ensure that you have a much, much higher level of success. So guys, I know I went on and on and on and on about cellulite there, but I hope that you enjoyed that um, very informative podcast. I did do an enormous amount of research um, for that podcast. And uh, and I hope that I remember to, to tell you it all. But um, yeah, so anyway, cellulite, aka fat, eat less, exercise more, Fill the area up with muscle, reduce the body fat, and, you know, swear to God, you'll you'll have what you want, but just know that it takes time, effort, and discipline, okay? Like anything, time, effort, and discipline to get what you want, but if you don't give up, you definitely will get there. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, This was epic. Don't forget to leave a review in the podcast, screenshot it and send it to me as a direct message on Instagram. If you want to be in with the chance of winning the Sculpt and Shred or one of our other programs, Um, have an absolutely wonderful rest of the week wherever you are. Absolutely love every single piece of you, every single one of you for tuning into these podcasts week in, week out. Um, I hope you get a lot out of them and I hope you enjoy them as much as I enjoy recording them. And I will see you next week for another episode of the strong and sculpted podcast this is kim constable over and out talk to you soon bye bye